Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I chat with Mabel Jang, partner at Multicoin Capital. Mabel started her career at Citibank in New York before moving back to China and joining the Chinese ride-sharing company Didi in their corporate strategy division. She then joined crypto investment fund Nirvana Capital before setting up the China office for Multicoin. This was a super fun conversation about exploring differences between the Western and Chinese crypto communities. We started the conversation taking a macro lens and discussing things like decentralized super networks and Web 2.0 apps in the West versus super apps in China. We then highlight three variables that have shaped the differences we see in the current crypto market structure, which are user behavior, information flow, and cultural mentalities. Make sure you tune in till the end to hear what Mabel has to say about the NFT movement in China. We cover all this and more within an hour. It's a must listen, guys. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Mabel, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show with me. Hi, Leslie. Thank you for having me. Super excited to join. I think we originally wanted to do this on Clubhouse Live, but for some reason, I guess the app was banned in China or what's what's happening there? <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've actually been very active on Clubhouse for a little bit. And then I actually was hosting the 49%, which is the live version of 51% of my podcast. And then I think some some people in the central idea like, realized that people were doing a lot of, you know, discussing different things, especially talking with people in Taiwan. And then it got sensitive. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Folks who are tuning in probably know about Multicoin Capital and know that you are a partner at Multicoin. Could you give us a one-liner to start us off? How do you position Multicoin Capital within this crypto finance industry? And then we can kind of go on to talking more about what you guys call open finance. Absolutely. Well, I guess if it really it's like one-liner. We just tell people we are a thesis-driven investment firm in crypto. <laughs> like thesis-driven really stands out. Our headquarters actually in Austin and myself in Hangzhou, we also have another partner in New York. So we do both public market and private market. So the public market, we have a hedge fund. For the private market, we have a venture fund. Both of them are fundamental driven. So we don't do anything like algo trading, at least not now. We've been you know, really active in terms of investing both private and public. And we believe that that's actually one of our edge to be across the two, two market to kind of shadow the knowledge across each other. And then also another edge for us is like the, between East and West as being a bridge. That's kind of a short in, intro. That's really what I want to focus on today as well. You know, this East and West conversation that doesn't really get talked about a lot. I think you wrote a few articles on Coindesk recently, which did a really deep dive into the cultural differences when it comes to consumer technology, e-commerce that really has translated into what we're seeing in the crypto space as well when it comes to community building. And, and so all of these themes I really do want to explore today during our conversation. But I guess it would be great to start first on Multicoin's open finance thesis, how you guys have developed that since your founding and how it has evolved as the DeFi industry has, has grown significantly over the past few years. Absolutely. So actually, I think for open finance, it's definitely beyond DeFi itself. So the way we've seen it, it's actually for us specifically in terms of like what we've been investing, it's two parts. One is the exchange tokens. The other one is DeFi, of course. So we actually started off 2019, that was before I joined Multipoint. 
Kao and Tushar, they both wrote something around BNB. That was like two long paper. That was really, you know, since the beginning of 2019, we thought, you know, exchange token was actually a very interesting phase in between the centralized finance, the, the traditional finance rail, and then the DeFi. Because really, exchange token, the way it works, it's like, you know, you are feeding some of the cash flow of the company into the work token model. For a lot of the user who hold this token, you have to earn it. That's like really essentially a work token. That's also another way bringing a lot of people who were used to kind of the traditional finance rail to, into the crypto rail. And then when the market became more educated, we thought product market fit has always been a very strong focus for Multicoin to, to make investments. So while we did spend a lot of time looking at, you know, all the DeFi developments back in 20, you know, year end 2018, that was like really when DeFi started to come out, you know, Compound, Dharma, and DYDX. And then all over 2019, we, we spent time looking at it. We really started to actively invest since the year end of 2019. And then we identified that trading has always been a very important focus of crypto space for like blockchain specifically. Because like blockchain, you are not like expecting it to do everything. But then finance has always been a very strong focus for that. So then we identified, um, you know, on the one hand, you need these kind of um, infrastructure to be a very important aspect of, you know, making all these things possible. You can't really just rely on um, relatively slow um, performance of the blockchain to, to do a lot of the complicated trading and then, you know, other aspects of the traditional finance. So then you kind of see like you, you need to have, first of all, like all the high performance blockchain. That's why we have made investment in some of the other blockchains other than Ethereum, you know, like Solana and some of the, the layer two solutions and even near and then some of the other ones. And then back to the back to the 2019 year. And that's kind of when we really started to actively invest in private market of the DeFi space. We thought, you know, at that point, D4s. Um, they were just bootstrapping, which one of our portfolio, they have very tremendous growth in China, you know, with the, with the TBL for their lending protocol. So yeah, we thought that was the time. And then at the same time, we were seeing the traction of Uniswap start taking off. So then we thought like, yeah, that's exactly, you know, when you have all these primitives to take off and then you will probably have some more sophisticated ones. That's how we came along later on with the perpetual swaps decentralized ones, the decentralized bitmax, and then some of the other ones like you know interest rate swap and all the other ones. So that's kind of how we evolve over time. What are some ways your observations on the ground in China, right? Your interactions with the Chinese crypto community have influenced the way that Multicoin thinks about the growth of open finance in the West and also like in Asia as well, more broadly, or specifically just in China, because I think having someone on the ground really does make a difference. Um, it's really hard to penetrate these local communities without having someone who's knowledgeable, speaks the language and all of that. So how has Bring You In really helped to kind of evolve this thesis even further? Right. So I think there's definitely a lot to unpack here. So I am going to leave the community component separately. We can talk about it more later if we want, because I think like community here is obviously operated very differently from the way that crypto Twitter or like you know, the US operates. So, so the first time I ever publicly talked about the idea of super decentralized super network, that was like when we published the post about like when we invested in DeForce. 
the the idea of super network really it was originally coined by someone um I think it was BlackBerry founder uh, Mike Lazardis he talked about like super app like he said you know a super app is defined as an ecosystem you know of many apps that people use every day and they offer the seamless integration within one so that you don't have to navigate around a lot of the other apps consistently if you look back into like web 2.0 kind of era you see that in the US you have Yelp you have OpenTable and all the other ones that are separately standalone apps versus in China you only have well it used to have Meituan and then Dianping but they merged afterwards and then Meituan started to do a lot of other things and then same for WeChat originally forked Kin which is the you know the application that people used to chat a lot and then also a little bit of WhatsApp But then it later on became a super giant that people can, you know, pay with it and do a lot of other things, you know, even like, you know, short videos or whatever, whatever. It really kind of rooted back to the reason I've been kind of thinking about why this is it um, you know, developed so versus like in the west like it's all standalone. So one of the mm-hmm. interesting theory I have was that um in China a lot of people did not have the luxury to have a laptop. They directly hopped from year 90s directly into the the smartphone. So then everyone was using their smartphone as their computer. So it's basically all these apps they are competing with each other and trying to fight for more user attention at the same within everyone has 24 hours a day, right? So then only if you have everything in one app that you can kind of retain as much user attention as possible, which I kind of I think I wrote in one of the articles as well. So that's why like we are seeing a lot of super apps because like they want to give provide a kind of a closed loop ecosystem for people to use and then they can just stay there and then you know this this app obviously will become the most competitive one. So I think this thing actually translate or like kind of educated people's user behavior when it comes to like web3 era application. In the western defi world um you see curve was doing it the stablecoin things itself and then some of the other ones like each of them they're just focusing on one thing and it's actually a merit for these western founders to be focused but in in china i definitely see people have the more tendency towards the defi super apps that's why at that point back in 2019 year and when mindao founded deforce he was thinking about maybe we should offer people one place to go to and then you know just do everything here so they don't have to navigate around and we will try to organize ourselves around all the wallets to make sure that people have this kind of one place for all experience this kind of have like two aspects of it right like one is the product component which is what i said about the super app the other part is and i think in china it's very important to have the right relationship with integration for the wallets some of the other ecosystem participant and then make sure that everything was that the experience was catered to or tailored to the local users so that they don't have to be trying to find out how to translate whatever things written on compound because actually in the past there was one situation when someone did not understand what the collateral ratio was and then got liquidated on compound but it was not compound's fault right it's just because like the thing was really not google translated well and then they misunderstood So I think you know it's really important on the second aspect to you know be be close with a lot of local you know participant and make sure that you know things or product experience when it comes to user interface when they interact with some of the protocol it's easy for them to understand
So I think that would speak for some of the primary observations that I have when when it comes to like, you know, how it guides our investment principles for DeFi protocols in Asia or in China. I'm glad you brought up the concept of the super app because there was an article written about PayPal and, and Dan Schulman, the CEO, basically came out and said, hey, PayPal wants to be a super app. He used that word. And it was incredible because for so long you think of PayPal integration with eBay, for example. I just use PayPal as a payments transaction services, but I can't trade crypto or trade equities on PayPal, right? It doesn't have the type of cash app integration, you know, or Robinhood type integration. Only recently, right in 2020, did PayPal kind of expand its platform to say, hey, we also want to host all of these services because we realize people are just coming to use us for payments and going elsewhere. Why not figure out a way to, to your point about retention, find a way to get people to use our services from multiple angles. And I think those are the types of apps that are going to position themselves really well once crypto becomes more adopted by mainstream, right? As more and more retail get into the equity space as well. Now with this whole Wall Street bets thing, you know, more young people, Gen Z getting into the game. I, I think they're going to find this super app aspect really appealing versus, oh, hey, I've got to open up 10 different apps just to do all of these different things between payments and trading and investing, right? So you brought a very interesting point. That's how I would re- usually think about it. But like, you know, last week I was chatting with a, a Wall Street trader, like he, he, he works like in a trap pie. And then he was actually specifically pointing out like he did not like the way finance is like because it's including everything in one place like you can trade futures like derivatives and spot and and even liquidity mining the centralized liquidity mining everything on in one place he said like he prefers something like coinbase that's kind of really i think the user preference per se rather than what it's good or not and you know think about similarly for uniswap and sushi swap I think a lot of the sushi swap these I'm not saying the founders they are Asians, but then I think a lot of the users are definitely in Asia, especially the supporters, the DeFi KOLs or whatever. Versus like I think Uniswap is still very, very much favored by Americans. They like the kind of simple UI. I think that's really comes to um, the user preferences. So I think that's some of the things that we have to keep in mind. Although I think a general rule of thumb for us in in terms of investing is that while DeFi has global liquidity, it does need to cater to the regional cultural differences and experiences. Because I think liquidity is only like the down, like lower layer of it, it's infrastructure. But then the front end still matters. And then users, whoever doesn't really understand the kind of nuances of DeFi, they would prefer something that they're more familiar with or used to. That's how I see it. That's interesting as well, because When I talk to folks who are looking for a counterparty for, say, execution services, they realize kind of halfway through the conversation almost, Amber Group is much more than just a trading desk, right? We also offer asset management services as well. But they start to realize, okay, I actually do need a one-stop shop that can point to lending services, trading, and yield enhancement services. And so that is different from the prosumer mindset that you're talking about when it comes to the user interface, it seems like you're saying the Western consumer prefers something that is much more clean cut. It does one or two things and I go to this particular app 
for those services, right? But when they want to talk to a, a voice trading desk, for example, it's almost like, no, they actually do want someone who can take care of all of their needs, right? There's almost that distinction as well, even within the Western community, I find. You are definitely right. For interacting with Amber is very different, right? Like for us, let's say, if we can do everything with you guys, with Genesis, like, you know, in terms of like lending, OTC trading, everything, I wouldn't really, unless like I'm trying to like be concentrated risk, which you need to do that when you're large enough. But like when you're small, you don't want to deal with all the overhead. Obviously, you only want to deal with one place. I think if it is, you know, in, in a bit of interesting contrast. I think for Western ones specifically, they like something that's you know easy to comprehend at the beginning. So like when it comes to the user interface, this is the thing you want to deal with. And then, you know, that's, that's it. You only have one purpose and you know, like which one to go to for whatever purpose that you want to do. But then when it comes to like, you know, something that come, you know, you still only want to interact with one thing, you know, Amber is that one thing. And then you have to do KYC with when it's like different services, I guess it's, it's always easy to only have one KYC and then that's it. So I think still the gist of it is the same. If I I'm making myself clear, I don't know whether, um, <laughs> I, I express myself clear enough. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting phenomenon to explore for sure. And if any of our listeners have a different view on this, you know, please feel free to share with us on Twitter and, and we can have more of an expanded conversation. Going back to your point about WeChat, within this context of user behavior that we're talking about, you know, much of the Chinese e-commerce community is very peer-to-peer -peer driven. A lot of the customer service is very, very high touch, just kind of outside of crypto, right? I'm talking about zooming out, looking at how the e-commerce tech and fashion and all these types of industries are driven, it's very much an intimate experience. And even within WeChat, I find this is the case. So can you talk about within the context of crypto, how WeChat is used as a community building tool for crypto in China? Right. So I found this very interesting. So in the West, it's always organized, or I would say crypto Twitter is primarily the information source. When it comes to China, it's not Weibo, the counterparty, or like the equivalent of Twitter. It's actually um, WeChat. I think, you know, one of the reasons being in China, I think people like to have the close friends or like friends referral instead of, you know, just following someone random. Like, they, it, like, like I said in the article, like it's a very high trust community. People tend to, you know, trust something that's referred by their friend instead of like they came across this thing on Twitter, and then they just follow it. I like that, you know, you always get using comparison with between Twitter and then WeChat to kind of like show the differences of how it, how it works. So I think primarily, if you are a project trying to get your community run in China, you have to establish one is the WeChat community, the group, the 500 group, you know, maximum is like 500 people. Mm -hmm. And then, and then second of all, you might also want to register a WeChat official account where you kind of just post your article. It's like medium, but it's like everything is hosted on WeChat server. And then with these tools, like usually you can have the way combination of Twitter plus medium that you have generally. And then WeChat is also playing a role of Discord. But instead of like, you know, on Discord, you have multiple channels, you have devs, you have random meaning, meaning like the, the overall general things and some of the other things. Like on WeChat, they usually it's blended. 
But sometimes like, if it's large enough, they will break it up for like speculator or like the people who who just kind of like invest, and then people who are part of the ecosystem or for some of the public chain, and then also the devs. Like devs usually it's like a separate group, um, so that you know things are not blended. But I would actually say one of the reasons that people like to use WeChat official account instead of using some of the citing some of the external sources is that. On WeChat, it's not like on Twitter or on Discord where you post all the links into the group. You will have all the preview. On WeChat, it's a closed-ended information ecosystem. You can only have the kind of preview links with whatever that's within WeChat. But you know, if you're quoting Twitter, if you're quoting you know Medium or whatever, you don't get those. That's why, like, they kind of it's again, it's the idea of super app. Like, you have everything in one place, and then they're Preferring their own thing. I'll stop here and then let you ask other questions. But it seems like I think you were just asking like how people are organizing their community for WeChat. Yeah, no, I, I think you segue into a topic that I'm really, really interested in, which is talking about the structure of information flow, right? And and this is also getting to what you talk about in both of your articles that are on CoinDesk, and our listeners can go there to find it. I'll also post those in the show notes. But talking about how when it comes to information flow, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages between the sort of free flow of information that we see across all these types of Western media platforms like Twitter that you talked about and the close-ended information flow on WeChat and Weibo and, and other types of platforms that we see in China. If we can do a deeper dive into what those specific positives and negatives are, perhaps when it comes to community building or just more in general, how the structure of information flow then influences how the crypto market structures differences that we see in both these regions. Right, I think this is like a very large topic so i guess we can kind of do it in a very, very conversational way first of all i think like i just mentioned a lot of the links are not really shown on wechat so then like you are kind of forced to have everything within wechat and then you have to use their own thing and then you know even use the wechat voting is similar to kind of twitter voting and all those right i think in that sense it's less about Chinese people trying to do it and it's almost like us because like it works that way so then like you have to use the way it works to kind of make make sure that it complies and everything so I guess like second back like think about how it works for Twitter it's like you can freely follow someone or like someone follow you but you don't have to follow them but then for for WeChat communities it's actually a flatter community where everyone is in the same group and then even if you ask someone, that person does not respond at you back, at least you can talk to the person. And then other people are looking at, you know, the conversation that you initiated. So then let's say if you're a group leader and you in, in kind of encounter a hack today, people are asking you the questions. Other people, the 498 number of people are looking at the question that's addressing to you. So you're almost like forced or having the peer pressure to respond versus... <laughs> I know this is very nuanced, but I, I thought it was interesting to point out. But then versus on Twitter, let's say I respond to you, but then, you know, I, I reported you. I didn't want other people to say it. I reported you. So then you didn't get to seen by other people. Then it just kind of go away and then you it wouldn't be able to like be seen by the public. So I think WeChat in that sense is actually less hierarchical um, versus for Twitter, 
it's permissionless. So like, I, I don't have to follow you back if you follow me. And then other people may not see or like, you know, equally see at the same time, my, my response to a DeFi founder or for whatever founder, if, you know, my, my follower base is not good enough or whatever. So I thought this is like interesting point because this on, on one hand, definitely make the relationship flatter, like I said, versus like Twitter is like slightly more hierarchical. But on the other hand, for Twitter, it's permissionless. You can follow anyone. You can do whatever you want. You can blacklist whatever. But for WeChat, think about this group. This is 500 people group where you have this, you know, and then the QR code for that group is also expiring in seven days. So meaning like after seven days of that QR code, you won't be able to scan it. So like only if you see it at the beginning, then you'll be able to join un unless like, someone else later invite you. On top of that, like there's also another rule that for any group that is like more than 200 people, you cannot scan the code to join anymore. Oh, you didn't know that, right? That's funny. I didn't know that <laughs> <There's> <laughs> because I'm not in many large groups on, on WeChat. But <laughs> There's definitely a lot of rules around. If you are the 201 person, you will have to be invited by anyone in the group. So let's say you don't have the contact for the group manager or you don't know anyone, then you are not allowed to join unless you find a way. So like, this is like kind of you know, the opposite. This is making, you know, building this community slightly harder um, into scale. But at the same time, it makes this group sort of like already bounded by the connection network of whoever's in the group. These are the kind of pros and cons that I've been seeing and I've been thinking about in terms of like how the groups are organized on WeChat and on crypto Twitter. So that's why like when it comes to the Western DeFi community, sorry, De DeFi project, when it, when it comes to like them trying to build their own platform or their own community in China, I always recommended them to have someone here because if you don't have someone here, you don't even have the WeChat relationship to begin with to, to invite people in. So it will be very hard to bootstrap versus like for Twitter, it's easy to bootstrap from zero. Right, right. This sort of two-way versus one-way uh, type relationship that I think we're seeing, right, across these Correct. platforms. And you wrote something that's very interesting, just to go back to talking about, you know, WeChat is that it's a quote, microcosm of information that originates exclusively from within, end quote. I just never thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, I knew about how, you know, the information is much more closed than a Twitter ecosystem. But just this idea that information that can really only be found within WeChat and is exclusive to, you know, WeChat community members, that is something that I, I think is an advantage to the crypto Chinese community because, well, it's, it's information that you can't find anywhere else, right? It's it's like to the Western guys, if you don't have someone like yourself or, or another Chinese KOL translating all of this interesting stuff that we find on WeChat, no one else is going to know about it. <laughs> it, it is very true. It's mechanically hard to actually export all the chat conversation. I actually don't know like how it works for Telegram because I, I, I would assume Telegram was the same. But like WeChat made it very hard to export all the conversation history. Like for example, if you were forwarding the chat history to someone else, like you know, maximum it's like a hundred messages. And then if you're trying to export it to a paper, it's almost like 
there's no uh, software that you can actually do it. There is one, but it's very, very hard. It, it kind of have you kind of requires you to give out some of the permission, which is like you know, not private enough. Anyway, I think the general idea is that WeChat, for some reason, they just made it very hard to bring information in the external hyperlink in. And then they also made it hard to kind of export whatever thing out. It, it's pretty funny. And I think it's not just idiosyncratic to WeChat. It's actually all these kind of super app in China. For example, Taobao, you know, if you want to buy something on Alibaba, Taobao, and then the link on Taobao are not allowed to directly send to other people on WeChat. They would actually blackmail it or like you are just not allowed to send. And then, so whenever they identify, you know, the website is, is Alibaba because it's a competitor. So instead, like Alibaba kind of generate for every single item on Alibaba, they generated a short key for people to paste so that if you copy paste the key and then you go to the site, it will immediately kind of pop up a thing and say, oh, are you looking for this? It's a lot of nuances, like you will be very, very, very surprised. I want to talk now about the cultural mentalities. So we've talked about user behavior, we've talked about information flow. This aspect of cultural mentality, I, I think really is what has driven the differences that we see in crypto market structure, right? You talk about the comparison between Western idealism versus Eastern pragmatism. Um, so how does this influence, right? The, the rational versus more evangelical, you know, mindset that we see in the Western communities, right? With the overzealous people going, you know, ETH all in, you know, or all the Bitcoin maxis, right? Can you talk about some of the differences from a cultural standpoint. Absolutely. I thought this is like a super interesting and on point discussion. So right now Ethereum per transaction, because I've been trying to like borrow some money from from Aave and that was usually fifty to a hundred dollar per transaction. So that's kind of the thing when it comes to like for the Western players, especially the ones who are deep in crypto, they would rather just like not borrow, but they would not play something on Binance Smart Chain. Right. I think that's usually how, how people would do because like they, they just felt like this was centralized exchange chain. There are some people, I wouldn't say a lot, but there are some people in China, they still treat Ethereum as beta as well, not just Bitcoin. But when it comes to the product itself, they see compound obviously so expensive to use. I mean, I have a few like smart whale around me these days and then they're using Venus or I don't know, Fortube or Cream on Binance Smart Chain because it's so cheap. I was asking them, like, do you guys care it's not safe or anything? And they're like, oh, Binance is, you know, Cheaper. backing this. No, 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 no. Binance is backing this. So I'm not like, afraid that my thing will get oh. stolen. So, <laughs> so when it comes to that, it's almost like, you know, they are trying to choose for user experience and then low entry barrier over evangelical beliefs. That's like one of the big thing I've been observing. And I think people have more tolerance towards all these smart contract platforms. They don't, I don't see any of the, well, I wouldn't say I don't see any, but I don't, I seldom see the kind of ideological debate that happens on crypto Twitter around, you know, which Ethereum challenger is better, you know, why or whatever. People, honestly, a lot of them, they understand them from, first principle like some people of course like they may say like they prefer sharding or some people do not like sharding they would say that but like they wouldn't try to 
um, black belt or the other one. And then they usually <laughs> will take pride as a very important factor. Like, I, I think it's very interesting, you know, right? Um, people who are, there are people who are like, you know, fundamental believer in technology. But at the same time, they will also say like, or joke around, you know, things like, oh, this thing sounds like it does work very well, but then the price doesn't <laughs> perform well. So that's also a big consideration factor, I think, around everyone, not just the, the speculator. But I thought that was also an interesting mentality. For you personally, with these gas fees that you're talking about, and that number that you quoted is exactly what I'm seeing as well, right? Do you find yourself also just looking at alternatives like Binance Smart Chain? The experience as a you know new DeFi user, let's say, could be so much better on a Binance Smart Chain just because you're talking about the fees. The experience is not dominated by this fear of, oh my gosh, when I you know, press the confirm swap button and I go on my MetaMask, I'm not going to be, you know, looking at 40 to 50 to $100 or even more sometimes on a smaller transaction for those trying to test things out. Yeah, sure. On Binance Smart Chain, you need to pay with BNB. But when you see that it's a couple cents to make this transaction, you're like, okay, I think I can do this, you know, um, I'm more willing to participate, right? So, I mean, that's just an example. <laughs> Not to say Binance Smart Chain is the, you know, alternative. I'm just saying for these types of blockchains that offer a perhaps better user experience just from a fee standpoint is is what I'm trying to get at. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I never use any lending protocols on Binance Smart Chain. I thought about that, actually. I mean, technically, the user experience, the entry barrier is really, really, really low. You don't even need to wrap Bitcoin. So for let's use Venus as an example. Like for someone who wants to use Bitcoin as collateral, like they literally just need to send their Bitcoin from Binance. So basically, Binance becomes this hub of cross-chain. Like the centralized exchange becomes their hub of cross-chain. And if you want to use um, Bitcoin as collateral on Binance Smart Chain, you only need to send your Bitcoin as BEP24 to Binance Smart Chain. So you don't even need to wrap it. That's crazy. Um, yeah, period. I know it's crazy. But then a lot of people who don't like, you know, you know, on Curve or sorry, not on Curve, on, on Ren or some of the other things, like well, wrap BTC, it, it charges a lot. You know, on top of the gas fee, like you have to pay money to to wrap it. Um, so yeah, like when it comes to like user experience, I have to say, even if myself have not used it, I'm pretty positive that people who are not just the dumb retail money or whatever, I mean, the smart money, they also use it. But you know, the reason they use it is not just because it's cheap. It's also first cheap, second. You know the the entry barrier. You don't have to wrap. It's easy. And then third, they're thinking that finance are kind of endorsing some of these protocols, although it's quote unquote decentralized. But like you know, some of the some of the protocols are actually just incubated by a company that was acquired by Binance. So people, if they know about that, they will be like, oh, Binance is actually gonna cover this for us. Um, I mean, that's what happened previously um, to Venus, like when there was like a small incident, you know, a, another collateral were deposited continuously into the protocol and then they just took away a lot of Bitcoin. I think Binance covered it. But yeah, so I, I think uh, there, there's like, you know, these three reasons are already good enough reasons to, to convince a lot of people to put the money in. So 
we are seeing this Ethereum, and then we are seeing some of the other things, for example, Solana, they are preparing for the other form of decentralized finance. It's also permissionless and everything. Because like, I have to admit that, you know, the user interface and everything on Solana wasn't great enough to make everyone convert. So then in this middle phase, people who prefer convenience, prefer like, you know, low learning curve, of course, they would choose Binance Smart Chain, right? It's EVM. You don't have to install anything else. You just need the MetaMask. You need to add one additional um, network like Coven or some of the other ones. You just add the right. BSD one. And then you're done and you can do all the things. It's inevitable that some of the users would just prefer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So now I want to switch gears a little bit and go back to something that you talked about in the beginning of our conversation, which is the idea of unforkable moats when it comes to DeFi application. And you talked briefly about, you know, the difference between Uniswap and SushiSwap. And in the article that you wrote, you said building defensibility in a world of open source DeFi protocols is unique, right? And the best way for a protocol to establish an unforkable state is to grow network effects as fast as possible. And boy, have we seen that with SushiSwap. <laughs> you know, a, a lot has happened since you wrote this back in, I believe it was April of last year, so 2020. You know, between all of these different forked protocols, Uniswap, SushiSwaps, Curve, Swerve, can you dig more into what you think contributes to a protocol's, you know, unforkable moat, kind of using perhaps the SushiSwap versus Uniswap example to help illustrate that? Absolutely. I definitely think the fork protocol that is stagnate or did not have much iteration after the first version of fork, it might not be as strong afterwards. Well, actually, let me not try to say like who didn't work. Let me say who worked. I think SushiSwap is a good example. When it first forked Uniswap, it was just a standalone AMM adding the yield farming pools. People are worried that if they just stay with whatever it is. Yield farming, essentially, it, at some point will stop, right? And then people are still going to use Uniswap to launch their thing. So instead, SushiSwap, after the whole Rockpool thing and Amaki kind of step up, the group collaboratively decided they need to differentiate. And then on top of that, they have Onzen, which is a rotational reward program for the new tokens to be added as liquidity pool on SushiSwap to get additional yield farming reward. So that's like a complementary thing. On top of that, like which is coming out, the bento box, that's essentially the margin trading functionality, but they're offering, you know, the different pairs of support for people to borrow the money to add leverage. So I think all these essentially are still trying to cater a better trading experience for these AMM users, but they're trying to differentiate from what Uniswap originally was by adding a lot of different capability and then try to serve people who are underserved by Uniswap. And then they also like try to work with people like Yearn, people like Cream or whatever. You know, all those liquidity are on SushiSwap so that whenever people are trading those tokens, they go to SushiSwap. And then effect of shared community, that's also very important. So I think SushiSwap was a good example to really kind of showcase like when you started with working, if you can manage to iterate new versions and new functionalities of it, you can actually thrive. I think DeForce was also something similar. I think they were 
more closely collaborating with people who are in China to kind of like, you know, serve people here. So back in the days, it was Lend of Me. So they work a lot with the local wallet and then make sure Lend of Me was the by default choice. So like on top of the front page of the wallet, you can actually have a button there at that time to like go into Lend of Me directly and to generate yields for your stable coin or whatever. That was very strong because all these wallets like Token Pocket, I'm Token, BitPie, whatever, they have a lot of, lot of traction. And then if all these Chinese people are using that, that's a, a, lo- a lot of, obviously, strong network effects. That's what I, what I meant there. Later on, like 2020, they added other things by, you know, the stablecoin swaps and then by collaborating with the local forked version of Curve. And then that's kind of a regional liquidity. And then they're kind of supporting each other doing that. So I think, you know, that's like a different perspective of collaboration and differentiation. But I think they managed to do that through what I talked about earlier about the local business partnership. Yeah, these are the two kind of cases I I like to mention the most because I think those are very convincing. Yeah, so it mirrors basically Binance's strategy, right, of building out a more just comprehensive, you know, suite of tools and this one-stop shop of if you come here, we can service you in all of these different ways. But then again, getting to your point earlier, these UIs are much more condensed than a Uniswap, which is still the token swap. Like that's literally what you can do. You can add different lists, you know, but then typically it's just that and you have your MetaMask browser and that's pretty much it. There's there's not much more that's expanded from a Uniswap. Although, as a first mover, um, they do still have the sort of liquidity advantage. But I guess the question of that we're trying to all figure out now is, is the playing field now more leveled such that should SushiSwap continue to go down this route of iterating a suite of tools, whether that is really what's going to drive them towards greater success? down the line, right? It's still kind of early because there hasn't really been a formidable AMM competitor to Uniswap. There's been a lot, but not to the extent that we're sort of seeing this neck and neck. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to your point about DeForce, you know, they really have, I think, capitalized on this hyper-localization strategy in China, given, again, this more closed end ecosystem where there are a few wallets that people choose from. There aren't like a million. (laughs) And so when you have the concentration of assets within just these few tools and you have that compounded by relationships, like human relationships that perhaps the founder or the team has built with people, you know, within China, it just kind of increases that network effect that you're talking about of just like, hey, users trusting the platform. Right. And word of mouth referrals and all of that. So I guess, yeah, this brings me to the point of, of talking about a key part of the Asian crypto culture, I think, is the holy grail of transparency, community and rapid iteration. And mm-hmm. you wrote that partnerships and trust are even more important to users in China than the U.S. because there is inherently and this is super interesting, um, inherently a higher requirement of trust. In China, can you break that down for us? Yeah, happy to. I mean, I use the example of like not your key or your coin. I was saying that like custody in China was not a very huge business because people like self custody versus like in the U.S. You see a lot of custodians, standalone custodians in the prime brokerage services. Because I, I think you know, at that the first kind of occasion that I started to think about it was actually last year, starting from May. We are seeing a lot of merger acquisition in the prime brokerage space. 
Um, mm -hmm. Coinbase, they acquired Tagomi, and I'm sure you guys are very familiar with that as well. Like Coinbase acquired Tagomi, and then Genesis, they acquired a, what is the one vault, I think? Yeah, that was the, the other custodian. And then all of these like become trying to become full-blown um, prime brokerage services. But then in China, you're seeing people are primarily still dealing with um, lending or asset management but not so much in terms of custody. Like you don't see any of the standalone custodian like in China right, at all. Right. Um, so that was like, you know, when I started to think about it and then I was like, oh, okay, maybe it really, and then, you know, another an, another thing that kind of hit my mind was um, I chatted with a lot of um, heads, the, the kind of prop shops, like they kind of just do high frequency tradings with people, for people who um, give them money. I was asking like, how do you guys usually deal with the money and then there's that like they usually have APIs from each of the clients um so like when it comes to times like March the 12th um Black Thursday it's actually a headache for them because they have to go into all these separate accounts on exchanges and I manage each of them instead of like everything in their own and then they custody for the clients so that's you know one of the one of the things that hit me it was like oh okay that's actually really you know, high requirement of trust, even if like, you know, I'm giving you to the, the right to ma power to manage my money, I'm not giving you <clears throat> the access to it. Um, so that's kind of the root of where I had it, you know, had this thought. thought. And then later on, I, I thought more about it. I was like, okay, maybe um, in terms of the, the relationship, it's, it's actually kind of similar, you know, the re WeChat kind of relationship, what I said earlier, um, about people bringing their friends into a community versus like, you know, um, on Discord and then on Twitter, it's more permissionless. That's also another aspect of it. And then I'm seeing a lot of the partnership uh, between projects, which just, be, you know, are done primarily because the founders are friends. I mean, I, I'm sure like this happens. I don't want to be like a super dichotomy or like this is done in the East versus not completely not done in the West. But I definitely think this, quote unquote guanxi, the relationship thing in China is a very prominent factor playing in how people are developing their projects. And they usually will try to think about partnering with each other. Like that's what we are seeing here in, in DeFi space in general. They are trying to starting with you know liquid sharing liquidity and then sharing the community announcement or pr promotion and even just kind of do cross community AMAs. For multicoin do you guys work very closely with with your investments, with your projects on building and designing tokenomics? Yes, we, we do. So my 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 partner and, and another colleague, Tushar and, and Spencer, they um they actually wrote an article about like, you know, exploring the design space of liquidity mining. Um that mm -hmm. was actually published on our, our blog. Um feel free to share the link below. Um I mean, in that one, like we kind of talked about like how we think about you know designing the liquidity mining and the tokenomics in general. Um, but yeah, I think I think you know that's one of the things that we've seen more and more in the space, which is as the token launch and then the community growth um, uh, grows, like you actually have a lot of impact and feedback from the community, and then you have to iterate and then evolve the tokenomics. Yeah. And do you find that from your experience, you know, working very closely with Chinese crypto projects, that there is a difference in the way that you 
design these tokenomics versus perhaps the Western projects? Is there a difference in the way you think about designing tokenomics for Chinese crypto projects? Mm, I wouldn't say it's very idiosyncratic to Chinese communities because I feel like everyone care about like what are the revenue or like you know value driven into the tokens. So that's why I have to be very honest. Like at the beginning when YFI came out, there was no this burning component, and I wasn't sure if it's like standalone governance token. How can you evaluate the value of it? So I think definitely people they care about the burn numbers for BNB for HT. I think that's you know the general kind of stock investors mindset. But I wouldn't say this is a very Chinese idiosyncratic because I feel like people in the West they also care about that. But I do think you know probably there is more tolerance around ideal, like the kind of ideological belief in one token, which is like you know why aren't Yearn's case back in the days when it bootstrapped, it did not have any value driven into it, but people still believe in the power of community. <laughs> Versus, like here, I think people really, really care. Like, you know, how much fee is burned? How are the staker of this token holder? They can generate more yield from it. Or like, if I'm a token holder, let's say X Sushi, which is the stake version of Sushi, what are the feed revenue streams that are going into this X Sushi? You know, they they definitely care about that because I've seen it many, many times in different groups, like the WeChat community groups. They come in and ask the first questions, like, oh. You know how can I use this token? What are the usage of the token right now? And then it's really pragmatic mindset. Also back to what we've discussed earlier. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, this more of a trader mindset from the get go, even if they don't know exactly. much about the project. Yeah, very cool. So as we wrap up our conversation here, um, it, it's been super fascinating, by the way, and and one of the best deep dives I think I've had to learn about the Chinese crypto community and sort of the differences between the West. Um, but looking ahead, you know, what are some core parts of the DeFi infrastructure? you think will be around over the next, say, one to three year period? And what do you think will get disrupted over that time period? That's a very interesting point. I think the first part of that question is actually easy to answer. I mean, I guess I don't have to point out because I think this is how usually I think of DeFi stack. Liquidity protocol, meaning the lending part is obviously always the foundation. And then you have trading on top of it. But then um, actually you also have the asset, the decentralized asset. That's kind of the three layers of it. But breaking it down, I guess I don't have to mention, you know, the primary lending and then spot trading, like, you know, AMNs are super important. So those are a cliche. Over 2020, what we've seen, there are at least like two components. I've, I think it's very, very important. First of all is the perpetual swaps, the decentralized bitmex. Because I think in terms of capital efficiency, Actually, perpetual swap, it's one of the best financial construction ever happened in derivative space. I mean, technically, it's only coming around um, to the public since BitMEX was founded. Like, it was, you know, rate used in some of the commodities tradings back in the days for TradFi, but it wasn't really a consumer product. But really, you know, perpetual swaps become something that's, like, really popular in only in crypto. So then, like, decentralized perpetual swaps along with some sort of scalability solution. For example, Perpetual Protocol, they're running on XDAI, although it's or maybe it's midterm, it's still you know something that's interesting. Because like one of the problem with a lot of these perpetual swaps, the decentralized ones, is that the funding rate is very high. And then Ethereum is so, mm -hmm. so expensive, like you can't use it. 
But so like if they can kind of figure out this um, scalability problem, I think, you know, this is something that's definitely going to stay a long, long time. And we have firm belief in that. The other part is actually some of the tokenized yields infrastructure, which part of it is like interest rate swap, right? Like we are seeing some of these newcomers like um, Swivel, which what we invested and that, well, I mean, there are like multiple variation of it, right? Like you have zero coupon bond, which is, you know, notional and then yield.io, that kind of thing. And you also have like interest rate swap, which is more like Kendo, which used the name Benchmark and then um, Swivel and all those. So I think some of these will definitely stay because I think there's a huge need for the large capital to want to lock down their yield. I know like people like to, I usually don't like to say, you know, something happens in TradFi, therefore it's going to happen in um, the decentralized finance. But I do think, you know, locking yield is the natural need for a lot of the capital. And then locking the yield in term with a specific interest rate, I think that's just kind of a general, like very, very natural development of the space. So these are the two parts that I, I think it, it will stay around and will be, become big. In terms of what it will change, I I feel like this is something could be very controversial. But I do think a lot of the B5.5 or B5 1.0 can be more capital efficient. I'll go stablecoin. A lot of people thought it was pure Ponzi. But I personally really like the idea of fractional collateralization. I thought... The, the, perhaps that's I mean I don't know yet because none of us would know but like I think at this point I do have some belief in the in the sense that at the beginning you start with 100% collateralization and then you gradually decrease the collateralization a collateral and then increase the elbow part of it because it's kind of a supported by consensus that's actually a more capital efficient way of maker um, I don't know how, how some of the maker people feel like, because like, I'm actually really, really good friend with Chow. He's um, the China head of maker. And then he, <laughs> he hated algo stablecoins. So I feel like this is a bit controversial. But I do think you know, some of the partial collateralized algo stablecoin could be interesting and could be disruptive. What projects did you say? The name? Is, is that something that, that you can share? <laughs> No, no, it's fine. I, I was going to just say like Frax, but like Frax is like, you know, one of the, I'm sure there will be a lot of them. I didn't say the name just because I don't want to feel, feel like I'm promoting it or whatever, but that's kind of how I secretly think about the iteration. I mean, it's fine. I mean, we can still be friends that I can you know, safely <laughs> tell, tell him in, in face like how I feel about it, but maybe he wouldn't agree with me. Cool. That's a great, great reference point. Again, not endorsement from either party, but, you know, just for our, our listeners understanding of, of what's out there in terms of alternatives. Exactly. Yeah. And and just because this is such a hot topic, I, I think as of the last, I don't know, two, three months, but of course it's been around for a while, NFTs, could you give us a few of your thoughts there? Because I, I think you've posted quite a bit on NFTs and probably have a personal interest as well, but you know, is there a strong NFT movement in China? I'm very, very curious to hear. Absolutely. I'm, yeah. Well, you actually follow my Twitter. Yeah, I did post something around it. I um, So in college, I was actually art history major. That was like one of my majors. 
Um, so CryptoKitties like got me when when it first launched. I was I thought it was really interesting. So the way I see NFT is really I don't think it should be generalized in one category because like you don't refer to fungible token as FT, right? Like that's just like way over generalized. So I think for NFT you have to kind of break it down by sectors, like you know music or text or um, graph graphic or whatever. I think in China specifically there are. Uh, there is actually a huge trend of people speculating streetwares. Um, people are trading their Taobao receipts online all the time. I have friends like you know trying to buy like the, the sneakers and then like resell it because like the 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 reason they're they're trading the receipt was because they don't want to like, redeem. They just want to gonna get a premium by speculating it. So I thought NFT could be very big in that sense. Um, we actually, I mean, I recently led an investment, but it has not really fully disclosed yet. So I can't say the name, but like, that's something related to that. Um, basically people just kind of like, you know, use NFT instead of trading receipts so that they, first they can prevent fraudulent because obviously there are a lot of fraudulent things that are not approved by the issuer. So then like NFT can actually, um, be a great use for that. And then second of all, it's like easy transaction, no friction because it's on chain transaction. Obviously the, if you're using Ethereum it might be costly, but if you're not using Ethereum, it's frictionless. And then I, I do think people here, like they might not be as, you know, interested in things like axes. Cause I, I don't know anyone who are speculating the small in-game asset, but I do know in Southeast Asia, there are a lot of Filipinos, like they are day trader for NFTs. So that's, that's oh, kind of interesting, interesting, but that's not happening in China, mm -hmm. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go ask someone who was in Southeast Asia. I was also curious. So like for them, the daily expense is like five dollars. So like so or ten dollars. So like they don't need that much money to so that's why they're day trading NFTs, the in game assets. Here people do like NBA Tosh top shots. I think this is like overboard. I don't have to <laughs> <laughs> explain. I think in the US and China everyone was speculating that. I have friends like who don't follow NFT at all and then they just buy it. And then Flow made it very simple because it's a centralized wallet. Yeah, so I, I think generally speaking, people are following. It's just that I think in different culture, people follow different things. But this is definitely a big movement. And I, I'm, I'm excited for some of the local projects to, to launch. Great. Well, I think this is a great place to end here. Mabel, appreciate you coming on the show and really sharing all of your thoughts. Listeners, again, I'll drop Mabel's articles in the show notes for you to read through. I think we need so many more conversations dissecting Western and Eastern and you know China differences because crypto market structures are always evolving, right? So even though we're having this conversation today, a couple months down the line, things might change, right? So there's always this need for just having constant pulse, so to say, on these types of communities. Again, Mabel, appreciate you so much coming on the show and hope to bring you on again very soon. Thank you. It was super fun chatting. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.